and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. My name is Greg Hunter, and I'm recording from Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this podcast, we ask the same ten questions, more or less, to a different cartoonist with each installment. Emil Ferris is our guest this time, and holy moly, what can you even say about Emil and her book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters? This interview dates back a few months. Uh, since then, the book has received honors, including the Ignatz Award for Outstanding Graphic Novel and Outstanding Artist for Emil, uh, being one of Publishers Weekly's Best Comics of 2017, one of the New York Times Critics' Top Books of 2017, and so many more accolades. Uh, Monsters is a wonderfully empathetic work, really full of color, full of life, and it has a lot of ambition, but a generosity of spirit to match. Uh, I think it's terrific. There's a sequel on the way, too, which you can pre-order at a place like Fantagraphics.com. Now, we recorded this interview at a coffee shop, so fair warning, there's some ambient coffee shop noise in the background, including music on our sound system. Uh, the exception to that is when you hear Matchbox 20, they flew in, Rob's an old friend. Also, at one point, Lord of the Rings comes up as a metaphor. Uh, we both struggle to get some names right. Don't tweet at us about this. At least don't tweet at Emil about it. And now, here's 10 questions with Emil Ferris. <laughs> they need a surrealist event that is so shocking and upsetting for so many people that it breaks them all. Because it's only Donna that can save you when you become that entrenched, you know, mm-hmm. in your... And it has to be nonsensical in some way. And I don't... I mean, it's going to cause blood to move, which is the whole idea of this. But, I mean, otherwise, what's going to happen is they're going to start to be marginal, right? To the degree that... Yeah, uh, I mean, I think they're there already. Oh, um, are they? Okay. I would say so. I mean, they still have a... You know, a, a fan base that's enough to sustain the companies, but it's—I mean—it's hard to be optimistic about any radical moves there. Radical is not going to happen. No, I don't think so. Okay, interesting. Because they certainly are coming to me and asking, talking to me. Now. Is that right? All kinds of people are. It's crazy how many people are, and I don't really know what to say to them because I don't. That's why I'm talking to you right now. I don't really understand what their issue is because I don't know their genre that well. I mean, I know superhero comics, I've seen the movies, I've read mm-hmm. the comics, but I don't really understand a lot of them. The thing that that worries me about their ability to innovate is if you look at um, you know uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the cultural political commentator, did a, a run on the Black Panther character at Marvel, which was one of their biggest sellers of the year, uh, which had some crossover recognition. Uh, and I think only a, you know a year and a half or so later, I don't think he's writing that character anymore. They had one volume of, of his run that wrapped up and was successful. Uh, it seems like interest in that has diminished, or Marvel got cold feet about certain things. Uh, which climate shifted, maybe. I don't know. Which, I don't know. I like it. In my opinion is whatever else is true. If you can't make that writer on that character work over time, uh, it's I think it's the fault of the publisher and not not Interesting. Coates. Right? No. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I haven't read that yet. Now I will. Because you said that to me. I should write that down. 
Well, let me ask you, because you, you brought up the changing political climates, and we're, we're, we're going to segue into the interview proper with Please. this. Uh, you know, am I right in thinking you would not finish drawing the second volume completely at the time of the 2016 election? Is that right? Right. I mean, there is a politic, I think, in the book to begin with. Your, your notion of monsters as people who are transformed by mistreatment or by the burdens placed on them as opposed to, you know, the more garden variety selfishness of characters like the gangster in the story. In that sense, there's a sort of social concern built into the notion of, of monsters, but but with the developments of the 2016 election, did you feel a more palpable responsibility with the book in that way, or uh, any, any compulsion to make the politics of the book more pronounced? That's such a great question, and I would say... Um Yes, in some ways. I think there were things that were already there and they were pretty profound. In some ways, I actually I decided to make the conversation in the book more accessible, less subtle, but more clear. And, uh, and, and also at the same time to step the politics back in some ways. So, you know, I, I think it'll be a mixed bag for people, but there will be a resolution political mm-hmm. resolutions that were not clear in the first book. Interesting. And yet at the same time I don't have any I don't believe in villains. There are no villains in my book. And there never will be. Because I don't really believe that there are actually villains in life. I think there are really wounded people. We're all monsters. Yeah, well, I have two questions following that. The first is whether it pains you at all as an artist to reduce the subtlety of the book in some ways. And the second is uh, in terms of in terms of empathy and the lack of, of villains in that book's worldview. I, I'm tempted to ask what the takeaways of that are and, and specifically how much empathy you think we owe a person like Donald Trump. Well, I can't speak to Donald Trump or what we owe him. I I really wouldn't even begin to know. Um, But what I can say in regards to my characters, I look at the things that people do as an outgrowth of everything that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think um, broken people make the most uh, fabulous leaders. People who are broken know they're broken and have gained humility because of it. And I mean, of course I'm talking about somebody like Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Um, Even to a degree, a person like Eisenhower, who saw a lot of war. A person like Carver, whose life was really changed by the presidency, who was forced to do things that he later admitted he hated. So, you know, I do have some characters in this book that reveal themselves to commit villainous acts. Mm -hmm. But are they villains? Never. No, because I think the actual substance of the human soul is good. I think it's good at its very core. I think it's subverted and perverted by the choices that we're, we make and things we experience. And here's the thing, and this is the thing I really believe. It is a great thing if you can get crapped upon without really being so turned against humanity that you commit crimes against humanity. You can be a person of tremendous value and strength um, if you can experience those things and not be destroyed by them. Mm-hmm. With respect to the, the other question about the nature of subtlety in the book, was that an easy negotiation to have with yourself? 
or no it was really really hard I haven't changed the book substantially from what it was but I've explored places in the book moments in the book that are going to be more painful um, and I'm sorry that that will happen I mean because I want them to be explicit the book is going to deal with elements of the holocaust but there is an explicit nature to living inside the moment when somebody who like all of us clings to their life faces the reality that they're going to have to let it go because it's going to be taken from them and they won't have a choice in that and that's a horrible place to sit in as a reader but the truth is we're sort of always there and we don't know it I mean, we're always dealing with our mortality, and we're always dealing, unfortunately, with a structure, a political structure, a governmental structure, a business structure, a corporate structure that doesn't value us as individuals, that looks at us and sees a numerical uh, quantity, a number, and it's always dollars. And so we're dehumanized by the system we live in anyway. Um, I think, though, that is the most extreme outgrowth of it. It was very explicit in those times. I think it's unfortunately becoming much more explicit now. Uh, I think we're aware that we're dealing with uh, being uh, quantified, being uh, having a dollar number attached to us as individuals, not being valued as people. So it is in the it is in those moments that I'm sorry for the reader, and I feel like if I could give you something, I mean. And, I have lots of tchotchkes around the house. I could send you something to say, I'm really sorry I fucked with you. Let me ask you another question along those lines about the the day-to-day of your creating these books. Uh, You've talked in other interviews about, as part of your process, being angry when you draft scenes with anger and then being sad as you draft sad scenes, you know, feeling those things authentically as you put them on the page. I, w- I was curious about the other end of that for you as the creator. Um, your characters encounter different horrors of different magnitudes, um, you know, with the Holocaust you know, actually being the most severe of all those, you know, being this totality. So I was wondering if the difficulty of producing these scenes, you know, varied with the magnitude of that horror, if Anka's scenes in Germany were just the most difficult by virtue of the content of them? They were very difficult for me. They were very emotional for me. Um, I can still get upset when I think about them because they happened. Uh, Berlin was actually the center of uh, prostitution in Europe. The, the comment about Berlin is it was called a whore, which is a terrible thing because this is a, a beautiful city full of amazingly talented and cultured people, as it still is. But the reality was that the economics uh, of the post-war world, the post-First World War, is that Berlin had been, all of Germany, had been absolutely depleted, destroyed, really, economically. And so people... Average people, women who had children, would go out and prostitute themselves after work for a period of time. I don't know if you are aware of that history, but this was really, really common, and it actually had names and it entered the culture as a kind of a normative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was how they helped their parents, kept their children alive, and child prostitution was part of that. It was extremely big. It had, um, you know, so. All the other countries in Europe were using Berlin in that way. Mm-hmm. And when you think about what that means for a child, 
I, I like the idea. You can you can hear all those facts. You can hear facts about slave trading today that's occurring. You can hear facts about you know um, the treatment of people in other countries or here, and they don't mean much to you. But when you can live inside a life and you can see what that actually means, it's a different sort of responsibility than you have to another person. I think it creates empathy or at least awareness. That was something I appreciated quite a lot about the book, actually. At least, you know, here in the United States, certainly not an element of the Holocaust education we get in schools, you know, the erasure of sex workers from those, from the most common of Holocaust narratives, anyway. Well, there, there's, it's a funny thing about, um, about these fascist kind of ideas. They usually attack women. They always attack uh, the family and children, but they always say that they're supporting them. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, what they do is they, they really do attack women. And I think prostitution is generally, when it is something that is foisted upon people, I think it's meant to be a thing. That, or when they're punished for being uh, you know, sex workers. I think that is uh, a form of uh, enormous hypocrisy. And I mean, I can completely imagine that happening in a country that un- I can imagine that happening here. And it makes me really, really uh, incredibly angry. Um, we're living in a world that does so many of uh, the same wrong things at the same time. I think we, we see them all. I, I like some of the answers people have, you know? But I mean, Greg, I like some of the answers that people are coming up with. I think uh, there are more progressively minded young people who are doing more things that are valuable. I know of some of them, and I'm amazed by the things they're doing. They're changing lives by interacting in the world in a way that's so generous and so conscious. Uh, I think it's really, this is a good time in a way for that. People realize it has to be. I hope so. I, I really do hope so. Ordinarily, we begin these interviews by asking, what's the most recent comic you've finished reading? Um, you, you've been very <laughs> been very forthcoming about, um, I guess, like gaps in your in your, your comics reading history. Um, but you've mentioned in interviews um, works like Fun Home and Jimmy Corrigan, you know, oh, some yeah. of these touchstones of the and, and, start yeah, of the century. Um, so I'm wondering if you've gotten... And Mouse was uh, very important to me. Um, people have realized that some of the older comics that are still so important to me, you know, I, my splash panels, well, the spirit. Sure. You know, I mean, that's, you know, I, I saw that there. Maybe I didn't say, oh, I'm going to do something exactly like that. But I did say, look, that exists and it works here. So let me let me work with that, mm-hmm. you know. So there are those. I'm reading uh, right now Fetch by uh, Nicole Georges. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, her memoir about the yeah. problem dog. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, and I love Ponyo. I'm a complete Ponyo <laughs> Uh, I'm reading Legend uh, by Samuel Satin and uh, Chris Kohler. I love their stuff. I, they're friends of mine, but they're also people I really like. But I don't generally do it. Mm-hmm. I don't generally do much uh, because I can't let people's visions in. I don't even really watch. I don't watch television. I don't have one um, because I don't want anybody's vision or voice sure. in mine. And I would say if you're trying to work on a big project, really do get rid of your TV. Let me, let me ask you an answer for this next question, then. We also, and I say we because it's an affectation I cannot get rid of when I do these interviews. I, I, I typically um, ask you, what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Oh, wow. The most widely loved comic I can't connect with. 
Uh, you know, I can kind of connect with any comic in a way because there's just this energy between pictures and words that always appeals to me. But in terms of really digging in and staying connected, I mean, I can even connect with the goofy, totally like 1980s superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. I can even connect with that. If I'm like in a doctor's waiting room and there's like I'm trapped, I will read that. But I'll be honest with you, I, I wouldn't probably do it otherwise. Sure. Um, and I, you can hate me, or someone can, because I, I, I like superheroes, but I, I, some of them are just really a lot of punching. And then there's a doctor, and he's invented something, and then there's some more punching, and then that thing gets used, and then everybody sort of freezes, and then it's you, you wait. I don't know. I don't really get that. Uh, that doesn't work too well for me. But, um... Gosh, you know, yeah, I guess it would be the less engaging superhero comics. I like the idea of good and evil, but I think it's a much less explicit battle. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's like within a person, usually. And I don't really... The the best superhero comics are the ones where the... Well, I love the villains, usually. Like, I really am interested in why the villain is the villain. Um, That could be the whole comic for me. Uh, and maybe that's the truth about the book two. Book two is really why is the villain the villain? Uh-huh. If you had to narrow it down to anything, that, that would be it. I think with that, that genre, part of the challenge is, is for readers and for for the creators is just the number of them that come each month and each year. I, I mean, when they work for me, the appeal is to a large degree actually quite a lot in common with your book. It's this externalizing of these internal things or oh, these yeah. metaphorical things and when done well, I think that can be really appealing, oh, even or, or especially in this uh, kind of cheap mass market sort of way. But you can get something really, a strain of great truth through. Uh, and, and of course they're beautiful. I mean, even today I look at them and I think, holy crap, this person can really draw you know, this is a beautiful thing, and I like the way they do it. I like all the moments inside of it. But I would say that I'm not interested in the purity of goodness and mm-hmm. and the force of might and the strength of muscles. Yeah, not that interested in that. <laughs> um, Sorry, yeah. Part of me hopes you will write a superhero book now. I oh, I am writing one. Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I can't tell you well, yeah, too much I about it. I won't it. ask you more than, than you're allowed oh, yeah. to say. No, I, I've been writing it, and I can't say too much about it. How do I even talk about it without giving it away? Because, well, it is... Um, I didn't see Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. But uh, it might be more about the villains, because I love the villains sure. very, very much. And, um, yeah, that's all I can say. All right. it's, uh, it, it's, it's an evil villain paradise that I'm writing about and of course it's set in Chicago perfect which is perfect because it is an evil villain village well I I want to ask you oh wait I want to say something Michael Chabon's book about comics and I can't remember what it it was uh, called Cavalier and Clay yes I was thinking of that when you were talking just now and I was thinking how true that is because it was so engaging to read about the, the pressures they were under from these cigar-smoking guys, get in there, boys, and give me something good. I want some punching. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just—it was fabulous. I love that book, and that's exactly what you want here. You the mentioned pressures. Eisner earlier, who has a you know a complicated legacy. There are some racial elements in his books, for instance, but there is, uh, I think, some compelling aspects of Eisner's work in, in that respect, where he's someone who's very much pushing against 
the limitations of, of the time in terms of the way these books are produced? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I know that's a really tricky question uh, when you get into that. Um, because I remember reading, uh, who is it, Jorge Luis Borges? Do I have his name, first name correct? I think so, Jorge. He was actually anti-Arab. And it's been written about. Yeah, he has some very negative perceptions of Arabs, uh, which I think is really, it's too bad. But that doesn't make his work, in my opinion, completely not valuable. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me, and I'm completely cool with that. I have the same relationship with Eisner. There are things that I really don't like, and then there are things that are so beautiful and overwhelmingly human. I don't say they redeem the things I don't like, but I say I look at those things. And I, and the same with H.P. Lovecraft, who was a terrible anti-Semite, um, and I love his work, but I don't like his life philosophy or his opinions about Jewish folk. Yeah, Lovecraft is is interesting to think about in relation to your work in that he was this person who's. There's another kind of externalizing there. It's externalizing through his prose, but you know, this is a man you know, who would seem to live his life in the grips of great fear. Mm-hmm. And contradiction, because he ended up marrying a Jewish woman. So, and here he's written all these awful things, you know, all these lies, and then he ends up, maybe he realized that the things he wrote weren't true. You know, what's, what's true in a human life? How do you know when somebody, you know, did Eisner come to the end of his life and realize that some of the things he'd written or done were just not right, weren't true? Probably. You know, um, Borges may have had, I think, sometimes, I think if there is a God, this God, she is a sneaky, sneaky God. Because there's this way that we get the things that we think we know about just slapped right up into our faces. So we get to, you know, encounter the thing we thought we understood. Mm-hmm. And we get to find out we didn't. And uh, it's wonderful. It's a gift. You know, but I think it happens. I'll ask you one more question about uh, specific comic books. Uh, if you can send one comic back in time to yourself at age 13 or 14, what would that comic be and, and why? Oh, it would be Fun Home. Fun Home? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely. I, I had no idea that it would be okay to be who I was. And there was nothing that I could see in the world that told me that it was. As a matter of fact, I was just listening to Elton John, whom, whom I love. I listened to uh, a bunch of his albums, kind of like every time I write, and as well as uh, Chicago blues singer, who I love, Coco Taylor. And I have an album of her work that I just listened to. I've worn it out. You know? um, but Elton John has a song, and the song is like uh, All the Young Girls Love Alice. And I realized that when I reheard it, that it has a very negative kind of connotation towards lesbianism. It's sort of treated like this bad thing. And I thought, you know, I lived in that world where I really did not know that it was okay to be me. Well, Karen in the second book has got to deal with that stuff. And um, I just, I had to re-experience it, uh, writing uh, the second book. And now editing the second book, I had to re-experience it again and realize that it's really more important than ever before because there is this idea in this country that it's okay to talk to people about what they do in their bedrooms. I I don't know who got that idea or why they think that's enormous hubris, even according to their religious lights. It's hubris for any person to tell another person what they should be doing. And there are folks here who seem to think it's their right. How? You know what I mean? Like, you know, folks, I, I don't see 
how you got that right. Um, and so she's dealing with that. Is there a part of you that hopes monsters will reach, you know, children of the age of, of 10, 12, even if their parents might object to them reading the book at that age because of Karen's journey? Yeah, and it's the thing is, you know, it is tricky, and I, I people have contacted me and said, should I give it to my 12-year-old or 13-year-old who is, you know, expressing the feeling that she uh, is lesbian or he is gay or he is bi or whatever the issue for them is. And I say, you know, you, you know your kid better than I do. And I'm going to tell you, here are the things that are in there. And uh, if you were to give it to this person, you know, maybe check in with them. Maybe uh, be willing to have conversations, really deep conversations, which I think any parent who's even thinking about doing this is probably the type who's so deep already. They're going to go, hey, let's check in, let's have a conversation, let's find out if that was cool for you. I want to ask you a question about struggling kids in that way. I was trying to think of the right question to ask about the Sandy character in the book. Uh, I found the Sandy scenes particularly moving because although Karen has a lot to deal with throughout the book, she also has this very obvious kind of resilience. These, Even though you worry about her as a reader, you, you think you can accept or believe that she has the internal resources that will get her through the book in a way you can't necessarily take for granted with a character like Sandy. Um, well, Sandy, you know, that's this is such a crazy thing. I did it. Mm-hmm. I did this to myself. A lot of people say, you know, this is where I really, unlike you, they say I really broke off from the book because I realized she was a ghost. And it bothered the hell out of me that you would have done this. Because it's so unreal and nobody could be talking to a ghost. Okay, well, here's what I did, right or wrong. I, um... That part is extremely true. There's a lot of the the book that's true to my life, and it's been changed just enough. I went to a child's birthday party, and they were an Appalachian child who recently come from the mountains of, I believe it was Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and they had no furniture in their home, and they slept on a tattered quilt in a closet. And in my experience, the child was actually had parents who were extremely drunk or high and were in the kitchen in those chairs. I later heard that the child, I gave the child a, uh, a bubble gum uh, thing that I bought, uh, saved up my money and bought at the Walgreens, and she ate because she was hungry. And it was, she said to me, this was my best birthday ever. And uh, it hurt me, and I later found out that... There was, uh, I, um, I didn't, I was not able to write this part of the book. And I, I gave up the book. I decided I'm not going to finish it. It's actually a friend of mine, Kurt, who said, look, why do you think you don't want to write the book? And I said, I couldn't figure it out. I said, well, I don't want to write about Sandy. I don't want to think about it anymore. Because children really do die. Mm-hmm. And they die right you know, in our neighborhood sometimes. Sometimes not from hunger, uh, sometimes from gang violence, which is another way we let them down. We let their, our children down, you know, and it was so painful to me, but it had to be done. And then when I realized I was writing about a ghost, I thought, well, you know, could Karen be seeing a ghost? And coming back from... Uh, Having lived in places that were very haunted, I would say to you, yes, children do see ghosts. 
they're the ones who do because mm-hmm. they're still open. And I'm sorry, I believe ghosts exist. And uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Sandy is a ghost. I, um, I'm, I just, I'm surprised that some people reacted, well, you know, I, negatively in those scenes because for me. When, when it becomes clear in the book that uh, Karen can talk to Sandy and see her and that Franklin can't, I guess my reaction as a reader was that Sandy, who's a character who you, you know, you allowed to live in this liminal space where she's both alive and not, depending on the other character in that situation. And for me, that was maybe the most, the most powerful you know, literalizing or, or externalizing of the circumstances she lived in or, or is living in. I don't know. I think I think that's a very... I love that part of the book. Well, like I'm really glad, and that's interesting that you do, and that might mean, Greg, I'm sorry, but little child ghosts may make themselves known to you at some point, because you have this openness to that. Um, and I always do this because I'm a coup. But when were you born? 1987. And you are what month? February. So you're an Aquarius. Very much. Oh, well, <laughs> very that much makes total Aquarius. sense now. They will come to you. Because Aquarians are so, they're psychics, really. And they're very sensitive, uh, aware, spiritual people. So I'm sure you'll be contacted by small hands. Sorry. <laughs> I'll have, I'll have the, your book is a point of reference. Oh, my God. Well, I'm sorry, you know, I got emotional there. Oh, no. No, please. Yeah. It just—it's very emotional to me. I, I can and like that. I said, I'm really grateful because I had a friend who said, "Whoa, you're crazy. Why do you want to give up on this book?" And I said, "Well, you know, I don't know, but I just got to stop." And, and you know, that's a well. If there's a takeaway from listening to me get you know uh, emotional, it's that if you're stopping, there's something that's so close to the bone. Because I didn't save that child. Mm-hmm. That's what I I blame myself for. I didn't save her. I didn't realize that she was dying because I was myself mm-hmm. a kid. And uh, I, sh- I feel, I've always felt I should have saved her if I could have. And uh, I did tell people that she was hungry. But you know, when you do that as a kid, I think other adults don't. They don't have a, a, a means of measuring that no. how serious right. you are. Right. And it's yeah. easier to not believe it, I'm sure, in some ways. I think so. I think it, it's also so terrifying when you realize that a child could be starving to death a block from where you live. Yeah. Well, I hope the drawing of those scenes helped you in some way. I'm very glad they're there. I mean, they're, there was something about those scenes in particular that, that if resonated magic, with me. If there's magic, I, I, was, I was really... If I am a magician, if, uh, like Alan Moore says, he believes we all are. Uh, and I think, well, I mean, I think artists are... He seems to believe that in his book, uh, Jerusalem. If there is that, if you're doing that, if you're listening to me and you're doing that with your comics, you know, put magic in there if you can so that people wake up to the things they need to wake up to. Uh, I believe in that, and I think uh, it's possible. I think it's possible that there are monsters, too. I believe in them. Ordinarily, there's a point... Uh, here where I ask someone what's the closest you come to quitting cartooning you, you just mentioned I just uh, answered it yeah. so let me, let me ask you also because there's sort of a second part to that you, in other interviews you mentioned I think it's, it was 48 out of 50 rejections for this oh, yeah. book which you know in light of, of how the book reads and its success is, is just a shocking figure but I, I think you say in the other interviews it's important for people to know things like that and I, I wanted to know yeah. also if you have practices for staying optimistic in situations like that? I do. 
and I, I can tell you what they are. I can tell you my my secret to staying in the game when the game seems like you're losing. And it is gratitude. It is just uh, stopping in the moment you're in. And because we go, we wind ourselves into darkness. We spiral into darkness. And, and, and really we do it because... We are being tested all the time. We're being thrown all these dark elements and then asked to deal with them. And sometimes it's very difficult and it's wonderful to have friends to remind you. But if you don't and you're in a moment of darkness when, as I was, you 48 people said no, um, count your blessings. Think about what you're grateful for. Think about what you're learning in this moment that you wouldn't have known about. Think about how strong you're going to be now and how you're going to succeed and be able to tell somebody else who's struggling how you did it. Replay the story to yourself in such a way that you have come out of it successfully and you're helping someone else. Because it's the strongest place you can possibly be. I have another question about resilience uh, along with that. You know, you, you've talked elsewhere about relearning how to draw after uh, encephalitis, meningitis, and, and the paralysis that came with that. Your, your interview with Terry Gross is, you know, about that. I would highly recommend it to the listener out there. And I found it interesting how enrolling in art school afterward, continuing your pursuit of life as an artist and a storyteller, you know, was not just an outcome of your recovery. It, it you know, encouraged your recovery. And one thing I was curious about in all of that was, you know, an artist's style is an extremely personal thing. You know, I'm, I'm sure uh, something that's connected to a person's sense of self. So I was wondering, uh, as you relearned how to draw, was there a, a particular point or a stage where your style became recognizably yours again? Was it from the beginning of relearning to draw? You know, in spite of you know specific technical faculties you had to rebuild, could you still see yourself and your sensibility in your your art from the moment you resumed life as an artist, or was that more of a process? Well, um, you know, to people, I would say to people who, and this goes to your question, they say to me, "Well, how do you? How am I to develop a style?" I would say, just draw. It's a natural outgrowth because the line, the line you make is an outgrowth of you. You're going to have a style that's all yours. Um, As long as you don't fill your mind too explicitly with everyone else's drawings, and I don't think copying is a bad thing. I think for a while, copying to learn positioning, to learn how to draw perspective, and all of those things is an important thing. But give up on that at some point. Trust yourself and just draw. And I knew that it was going to be what it was going to be. Um, As a matter of fact, there were days where I drew poorly because I was having problems with my hands. And uh, I drew this one terrible version of Karen that my daughter uh, named... uh, She said, that's not Gertrude, that's Fartrude. (laughs) And we put it up on the wall. For a long time we had Fartrude up on the wall because it was the worst drawing I'd ever done. Uh (laughs) And it was important to be able to look at it and compare it favorably to everything else I was doing. So I would say have a sense of humor if you're trying to recover or even gain your own thing and trust yourself. Trust that you have this uh, story to tell and you're the only person who can tell it. And the way you draw is the way it needs to be drawn. What's the best advice you've heard about making comics? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, I like something somebody said, and it's more. It more goes to experiencing the criticism that is a requisite of bringing anything out in the world, and that is that it will mean nothing to some people, mm-hmm. and it will mean everything to others, and that's okay. You know, you're going to take a hit. There are going to be, you know, I will tell you straight up that when I brought this out and I started working on it in graduate school, there were people who told me it was terrible. It was garbage. Uh, but they didn't like comics either. And that I was never going to have an agent because comic artists don't get agents. And, I mean, they had all these ideas. Well, it turned out none of them were true. <laughs> so, so And it also turned out that to some people the book meant a great deal and to others absolutely nothing. And that's as it should be accepted. And that's fine. Around this time, ordinarily, we also uh, ask what work from another medium has influenced you the most. You've talked elsewhere about monster movies, uh, monster comics. Um, silent films. Silent films. And I, so I wanted to ask you to sort of uh, take a lateral step with this one. There was a long piece that arrived online recently about Ted Leo making it clear that he's someone who's weathered his share of, of traumas and obstacles. And, and you, of course, have created the art for his newest album. So I wanted to ask uh, what the process for that was like. Well, Ted knew what he wanted. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew exactly the images he wanted. He he had had a really powerful revelation about um, the hanged man, and it it was what his album was based on. Um, I just worked from the images and the words that he gave me, and uh, sort of intuited them into into images rather. So, uh, and I listened a lot to his music, which I think is amazing. Um, I just trusted him in a way to guide me, and I was like, I don't know. I kept having this image of the part of uh, Lord of the Rings where. He was my Gandalf, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was trying to get through that gremlin, uh, not gremlin, what were they, I can't remember what they were. were. orcs, I think, there were orcs yeah, somewhere. Yeah, well, there were orcs, but underground, I was trying to get... Oh, the, was, like the, the, the larger... Well, they were the little ones, the troll-type characters, but they were not nice, I think they were like a mutated, mutated troll, but I was, he was my Gandalf, and I was just going through, and... You know, it was it was it was cool. You know, he, he gave me everything, and I just sort of uh, translated it visually. Our last question is it's a little goofy, but it, it's uh, monster adjacent, so I feel I feel comfortable enough asking this one. Um, aliens have made contact with Earth. Okay. They seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. You've been selected to introduce them to comics. Uh-huh. So what do you show them first? Well, you know, here's my thing. I, I I have a joke with a friend of mine. We're both Chicagoans, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a person of color, but I'm not a black person of color, and there's a whole different ballgame there. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a, a person of color. She's African-American. And we talk about what it is to be a Chicagoan in, one of the, in a divided city, but we grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't divided. We've been friends since we were eight. And we make a joke that the aliens, her name is Crystal Powell, we make a joke, Crystal and I, that the aliens come down and all of a sudden we are going to love each other. I'm going to love you, you're going to love me, because we're human. There's no tentacles, there's no giant staring eyes, there's no creepy hive mind to deal with. No, we are just going to love the hell out of each other. We're going to give up on all our racist motherfucking bullshit, and we are going to be people fighting this shit together. 
because you know we're gonna have to be mm-hmm. right so I'm not sure about the aliens I'm gonna put it right <laughs> out there I trust my Chicagoans I trust my people my humans I don't know about these aliens I'm not sure about that recipe book thing you know sure. um, how to how to serve man yeah <laughs> I don't uh, I don't know um, I'm not sure I'm gonna give them comics right off but if you say uh, if you say if you Greg and I I, I totally believe you might have a sense you're mm-hmm. Aquarius you have felt them out spiritually you say to me Emil they're actually okay and I want you to pick a comic yeah, or, or, or if the comic is even the tipping point, potentially, if that doesn't add too much pressure into the Well, situation. I think I would pick Mozart for them. I really do. Sure. I think I would. And um, I think I would probably pick the films of F.W. Murnau, like Sunrise. Mm-hmm. I would pick that movie, uh, The Beauty of That. I'd say, here you go. You know, and food-wise, I think I would I would pick Lebanese food. Why is that? Well, it's good. <laughs> and if they don't like it, then we know we can't trust sure. them. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can end on that. Like, thank you so much. Yeah. I thank you too, Greg. I mean, this is uh, it was cool. We were here. We did the thing. <laughs> it's all good.